Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. Welcome to this week's installment of the GateWorld Podcast. You're listening to episode number 22. And today, David and I are talking about infection, last week's new episode of Stargate Atlantis. We also have some new features on GateWorld to catch you up on, and lots of listener mail this week, so let's jump into it. Coming to you live from two adjacent stasis pods on board a Wraith Hive ship, the GateWorld podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner, and joining me once again is GateWorld's co-editor and superhero, David Reed. Superhero? I thought no one could see my tight shorts. Was I not supposed to give that away? No, you weren't. They're in the dryer. I have no knowledge of your tidy whities Just your <laughs> alter ego as a superhero. Yeah, I'm sure that'll convince them. Well, news broke out this week about the uh, pilot title for the Universe 3 Parter. Yeah. Uh, on Joseph Malazzi's blog. It is called Air. Air. Air Part 1, Air Part 2, and Air Part 3. Yes. What do you think about this? Well, um, I think it's referring to oxygen, which is cool. Makes sense. And as someone I know jokingly suggested, the next episode will be called Dirt, and then stay tuned for the mid-season two-parter, Paper and Plastic. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what to say about that. Okay, so the title is, uh, the working title is apparently Air. That is kind of specific. Uh, I could Mm -hmm. refer to maybe the crew's lack of air. They're on a spaceship, and they need it, obviously, to breathe. Uh, I assume that that's not the entire plot of the three-hour opener for Stargate Universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But neither was the entire plot raising the city in Rising 1 and 2, you know? Sure. It was at the beginning of Part 2. It could have just as easily been called Rescue or anything else like that, you know? Um, into the Great Beyond. Or... So I, I think that that is, like, probably the overarching concept i can see some i can see them visiting this new ship and i can see them exploring and i can see a a scientist buzzing around uh in a control room talking frantically about their need for oxygen supplies and you know dwindling power supplies that i can see some kind of a uh a visual effects extravaganza sequence near the end and then a, a nice resolution to uh, to boldly going and it's all about air. So it's it's a typical pilot structure, yeah. But, um, you know, I could be completely wrong. And I hope I am. I don't know. We can usually guess a little bit from the title, but this title is so... I don't know. In, in some respects, it's really specific, and in some respects, it's kind of generic. So I'm not sure what to make of air. But I'm looking forward to seeing the episode. Just let it be. Gateworld Features. Last week we told you about our latest interview with our friend Martin Garrow, writer and executive producer for Stargate Atlantis, and now a writer for Stargate Universe. This 43-minute interview is now available for you to listen to at GateWorld. Martin talks about the success of his film YPF, working with Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson on the episode Brainstorm, and the controversial McKay-Keller relationship. This is a really interesting and candid interview, and you can hear it now by visiting GateWorld or subscribing to the GateWorld Interviews podcast on iTunes. 
43 minutes. This was a really long one. It was a long one. It was originally about an hour and three, and I had to trim it down. Martin and I got a little vulgar with one another, and uh, <laughs> I wanted to take some of that out. You know? In a nice way. Well, I think we, we talked a lot about the movie, which is obviously very important to him, so I wanted to mm-hmm. address that. Um, but that originally clocked in around 16 minutes, so I ended up taking about eight minutes of that out. Mm-hmm. The the meaty stuff is, is really in there, and I think it's a good one. So No one can s- certainly complain about uh, it being an old interview. Yeah, this one we turned out in a couple of days. You must have mm-hmm. uh, worked really hard. My fingers were hurting, and uh, I, I owe a great deal of thanks to um, Kiwi Gator as well for, for taking the first 20 minutes of it. But yeah, it was really great. I love listening to Martin and chatting with Martin because he's just he's a very candid guy, and he's very down-to-earth, and he doesn't really mince any words or make any bones about telling us what's on his mind. He doesn't spin. If he liked it, he liked it. If he didn't, he didn't. This week, I'll be chatting with Stargate Atlantis' Kate Hewlett, David Hewlett's real-life sister, who plays Jeannie Miller on Atlantis. Of course, we haven't talked to her yet, so we can't tell you just what she said, but we plan to ask her all about her recurring role of the show, its conclusion, and her appearance in this season's episode, The Shrine. Watch for Gate World's interview with Kate Hewlett later this week on the site. Talk about that one being fresh out of the oven. Yeah, fast turnaround. We usually, you know, people who have been visiting the site and and listening to and reading our interviews for a while know that we get a bunch in April when we go up to Vancouver. We usually get like 15 or 20, and then it takes us several months to get through them, not necessarily just because we're we're sitting on them, but because it's, I mean, we're two and, and now three guys with, we've finally started bringing on some helpers to uh, to do things like transcribing these interviews, but it's a lot of work. It is. In in September and October alone, we kicked out sixteen interviews. Yeah, that was a lot of material, man. So by um, the time we get here to the fall and now pressing up against the winter, we're finally finished with that stuff, and we get to do lots of new stuff and hopefully turn it around much quicker. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking with a couple more actors, getting some directors on the phone uh, as well, and uh, a couple of surprise guests too. Yeah. that we're working on that you wouldn't necessarily expect for us to talk with. So that's great. I love doing surprising stuff. And hopefully we'll find out in the near future who uh, is going to get cast on a, on a Stargate Universe. We're hoping to be able to track down as many of those actors as possible to sort of chat with them a little bit before they step onto the set in February. I think that's a, that's a really good possibility, and uh, I'm looking forward to building those relationships early. Mm-hmm. The main discussion. Our main discussion topic today is Infection, the 17th episode of Stargate Atlantis' fifth season. This aired last Friday on Sci-Fi Channel, of course, and we're down to just three episodes left of the show after this one. But um, we got to see a little bit of resolution at the end of, of Atlantis for one of my favorite recurring characters, Todd, played by the great Christopher Heyerdahl. Cool guy. Chris is um, a class act, and he brings a great uh, deal of color and personality to a race that has frequently in the past lacked it, a race of drones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I enjoy it when he comes on. I, I didn't know until a few days before this episode aired that he was going to be in this one again. I've been I've been working on getting Chris for an interview, so I'm glad I held off on that because yeah. he played a big role in this one. It's the nice thing about spoilers. You know, when, when we see him on the screen, we see him talking, and I honestly didn't know if he himself was going to appear. 
So that was that was a cool surprise as well that he came out of stasis. Todd has been a big part of the attempt to sort of put a face and a name to the Wraith because for so many years they were really kind of generic and we had you know the same actors were coming back and playing different Wraith and they get killed, you know. James Lafazanos was playing uh, the male Wraith over and over again and, and he kept getting killed off Bob and Steve and all <laughs> those Wraith. And then Chris Heyerdahl came along and played this Wraith that was in captivity that Kolya had captured in Common Ground back in Season 3. Mm-hmm. And he sort of became the face of the Wraith. You know, the other Wraith that we have a name for is Michael, but he's not hes not the face of the Wraith. He's kind of is doing his own thing. He's basically declared war on the Wraith, and he's, mm-hmm. he's a hybrid. So Todd has been sort of the, the king of, of the real Wraith. I think that a lot of what is in this episode that I like, a lot of what this episode is about, is Shepard's relationship with Todd. They mm-hmm. they had that, you know, kind of off to a good start in Common Ground, and then they've kind of gone back and forth, and he's helped us out, and he's helped us to develop this, and we fought the Replicators together, and then, you know, Todd has his own agenda, and we worked with him uh, earlier this season in The Queen, and then he comes back and tries to crash our ship and kill all right. our people in uh, The Lost Tribe. So we go into this episode, and Shepard is just flat-out pissed at the guy and, and says, I owe you nothing, and I would just as soon exactly. blow you out of the sky unless yeah. I think that we can get some information out of this hive, out of what went wrong with the treatment. It is important to remember that Todd tried to incinerate his friends. Yeah. It is something very unforgivable. He tried to murder the crew of the Daedalus and Wolsey and, and several of the others, you know. And I, re- I remember in uh, our Lost Tribe podcast mm-hmm. uh, saying that if they do not recognize what he has done when we see him again, I will be pissed. And of course they did, you know. Uh, the show's writers are very good about recognizing continuity, things like that, you know. There is always f- uh, an effect from a cause in yeah. this show, you know. If, if something happens, then, then it will be an important talking point in a later episode. Or action point. But what I really liked about it, you know, was that it was not just sort of something where Todd and Shepard come face to face and they kind of have to have it out for a minute and then they can move past it. This is something mm-hmm. that is is under Shepard's skin and is informing mm-hmm. what he does in this episode and it doesn't go away. I think all the way up until the last shot where Shepard sees Todd off through the Stargate, uh, lets him go, and then the, the episode ends with just this look on Shepard's face. Make of it what you will. I see that as kind of under the surface for Shepard throughout the entire episode. Is, is He's not forgiving Todd, and he's not forgetting what he did. Yeah, Todd really crossed a line uh, in yeah. The Lost Tribe. I mean, yes, he has crossed the line in the past, you know, but to, but to far less degrees, you know. He, try, he just folded when it came to us and let us go. He was perfectly willing to, to let several of us die. Uh, and that is something that is not quickly forgivable, and that's something that I really appreciated about this episode. You know, that current is there. Uh, it was it was one of the things that I had a problem with when we first saw him, when he first came into orbit and said, here I am, you know, mm-hmm. do what you will with us. I'm thinking, huh, okay, I wouldn't have done that, but okay. Yeah, he was definitely desperate. Exactly. They made that point very solid. And he apparently knows of the super healing trick, from hundreds of thousands of years ago of getting yourself fed on by an erratus bug queen. But apparently, I guess, he thought that that maybe going to Atlantis and seeing if 
Atlantis could figure out a way to reverse the effects of the treatment and cure the disease may be less of a risk. Well, he said most of the time the Wraith die when this happens. And boy, didn't that option come out of left field? The queen option? Yeah, I mean, how does letting an Iratus bug take your life force equal salvation? It sort of pinged as an idea in his head when he looked at Keller's data, I guess, and saw that Keller had tried using Aratus bug DNA in this treatment. Aratus bugs mm-hmm. are, as we know from, from the past, are genetically related to the wraith. The wraith evolved because Aratus bugs were feeding on human populations and mm-hmm. sort of, uh, you know, mixing their DNA together. I don't think they explained adequately just how that works. And he goes through the gate in the end, and it's like, well, maybe he died, maybe he lived. Once again, we don't know what happens to one of our adversaries, which is fine. You know, it keeps the door open for him coming back. Yeah, I think it's a nice conclusion. One of the things that the, that the writers wanted to do was pay off the Queen arc that we've seen with the use of the... Wraith gene therapy? And and then the fact that Todd has basically taken over this alliance of Wraith. So I think it's it's satisfying to see him walk through the gate there at the end, and he's basically a terminally ill... Wraith, and he's going off to find his last desperate hope of salvation. And mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. hope he shows up in the movie. I really do. Or certainly an Atlantis movie. You know, that's important. I think that's one of the things that they spoke to is that this this guy has to come back again. You know, it just wouldn't be right if he didn't. Yeah. Now, with all that talk about Todd, uh, I have to say that leading up to Todd, I was a little bit disappointed in in how long infection took to build up to get there. Looking forward to Infection, um, didn't know a whole lot about it, knew that it was set on a Wraith ship that had shown up in orbit, didn't know a whole lot about the plot or the context, or, or even that Todd was in it necessarily. So I was kind of expecting another typical running around through a Wraith ship or a Wraith laboratory uh, shooting at bad guys while McKay tries to fix whatever's wrong with the Wraith technology. Um, we've mm-hmm. seen this, this kind of episode a lot. Exactly. It makes me think of, of episodes like Spoils of War last season with, with the Wraith cloning lab. Uh, it's just kind of, it's a lot of running through Wraith corridors and shooting. Uh, and the first part of the episode, up until Todd gets released from stasis, is, is kind of that. It's, it's, well, we're trying to figure out what the ship is doing here and what did Todd mean in his message and then the monsters yeah. start showing up, and, and we get monsters jumping out, and we get kind of the horror factor like we did in Whispers earlier this year. Big nasties jumping on you with their big teeth. And that was didn't really interest me all that much, maybe because I'm not a horror fan, maybe because we've seen a lot of it recently on Atlantis. But I thought that once Todd gets taken out of stasis, the episode really takes off, and that's I'm not sure where that is. That's maybe about a third of the way through the episode. Closer to halfway through. Closer to halfway. I found it difficult to really see this episode as as much more than just more running through corridor shooting at Wraith. And then when Todd came out, it just took off, and we have all these character dynamics between Todd and Shepard, and you know Keller's trying to almost apologize to Todd for what she's done, and Todd shows himself that he's not just a power-hungry villain. He's concerned about his crew, and he, he's fighting for the survival of his people. There's just a lot there, and then the whole thing about what he did with the Daedalus, and, and character-wise, I think that last half, Todd really carried this episode and, and mm-hmm. made it something that I really enjoyed. When the monsters started jumping and that first spook with, with Williams, you know, I mm-hmm. have to admit that I lost interest. 
I understand that the wraith can no longer feed through their hands, mm-hmm. and so they have no other choice but to eat uh, through their mouths. Yeah, it was cool to see them with their masks off. So I appreciate where that's coming from. It's just that it, the whole running and gunning through through Wraith Hive ships, you know, shooting down Wraith, is so unsatisfying as far as I'm concerned. And then you have the mm-hmm. Rodney McKay buzzing around, trying to figure something out, trying to figure out what's wrong, carrying 60 to 80% of the dialogue. I've just been there, you know, and I've done that. And it it, it did not hold my interest. Especially because we had such a, a very deliberate, you know, kind of spooky, smoky horror episode with whispers earlier this season. Uh, the whole sort of, I'm going to poke my head through this hole and look around and I'm sure that a monster is not going to reach out and grab me is a mm-hmm. little silly. Uh, all the horror stuff, the, sh- mm-hmm. the shocks I saw coming a mile away. The ship being infected with the disease I saw a mile away. I was kind of surprised that, that Todd thought that that would be impossible, you know, and he's that, that the ship could be infected. And he's like, well, you know, the, the ship and the crew exchange fluids. I'm like, then how can that not happen, you know? I mean, this, is, this attacks Wraith physiology. The Wraith hive ship and the Wraith themselves are very similar uh, genetically, I would imagine. Mm, they seem to have a, a symbiotic relationship with their ships. Yeah, exactly. You know, if one catches a cold, wouldn't they all catch a cold? That's what I think. But that that was kind of cool, the ship changing shape. I wasn't sure that it was as much changing shape as it was just falling apart. The ship breaking up was, was, was pretty cool. Yeah, when it actually splits in half there at the end and then the, the, mm-hmm. the front part sort of dives into the atmosphere. That was cool. That's I mean, it's something that we've never seen before. And it's it's a little surprising, and so it's interesting. It's it's not just running and gunning through wraith corridors. It's riding it into the atmosphere, which we've we've seen that kind of thing before. Um, but it was cool. Now, talk to me for a minute about the the ethical issues that are implied here. Uh, again, we have Todd is is a bad guy, but he's he's been our ally in the past. He's come to us for help. The Wraith are obviously, uh, we regard them as monsters. They're a plague on the Pegasus galaxy. What are the ethics involved in in Shepard's decision to basically kill the Wraith crew while they're sleeping? Does this mean that we're no better than Todd? I was really surprised that we did that. I was really surprised and disappointed that we did that. Wraith or not, you know, they are... I don't know. And I I can hear Martin saying, we got them, you know? What are you talking about? They would kill you, you know? It's it's the same question that we raised with with the genocide of the replicators. Yeah, I have a problem with that. You know, I have a problem with us doing that. Replicators are bad guys, and they're trying to take over the galaxy, and they're they're killing hundreds of thousands of of human populations. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. genocide, come on. In war, there are rules. You have obligations to your enemy, whether right. you like it or not. Right. You know, and we kind of ignore that. Kick them when they're down, absolutely, you know? It's yeah. one less Wraith Hive ship to deal with. I couldn't believe that he said that. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. I kind of like it as a story choice, as a character decision for Shepard. I like that Shepard is so fed up with Todd and so angry about what Todd did with the Daedalus crew. Uh, that that he is making that decision, I think it mm-hmm. it, it takes Shepard to a dark place that I think is interesting mm-hmm. for his character. Um, but I would have liked to see it dealt with a little bit more, uh, a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, we don't expound overtly. on it. It's just, it's just dabbled. 
Yeah, I mean, Rodney does say once or twice, you know, is that a really good idea? Look at what we're doing. Um, so I'm glad that it's there. If you condense the build-up uh, of that first half of the episode, then there's more time to deal with some of these mm-hmm. really meaty issues. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, is this a, an ethical thing to do? That's what I loved about SG-1 Season 6 is unnatural selection. Mm. That was an episode about that topic. Yeah. You know, that was what it was about. And it feels like of late, you know, they pluck it in as a couple of token acknowledgments to that type of storytelling, you know. I mean, we just we just don't really deal with it that much anymore. Yeah, Jack basically ordering Sam to betray Fifth. Mm-hmm. That's one replicator versus billions of them that we incinerated. One thing that really interested me actually over on GateWorld was uh, Callie Sullivan is our fantastic transcript author. Um, she turns around transcripts that are incredibly detailed and accurate every single week within a couple of days of the episode airing. Yeah, props um, to Callie. And so I looked at, at Callie's transcript here, and I noticed that she was referring to Todd as it instead of as he. Hmm. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at the show. I'm kind of curious if some of our listeners think of the Wraith. Obviously, the Wraith have been humanized through characters like Todd. Do we think of them as, as creatures, as animals, uh, as, as just pure villains? Uh, or do we think of them as, as people? You know, are they sentient? Do they have rights? Todd is concerned for his crew. He's concerned about his way of life. We've talked in the past uh, with Lost Tribe and, and First Contact. We talked about philosophical Todd, Todd asking questions like, uh, if, if we take this gene therapy, uh, it fundamentally changes the nature of our existence. Who would we be at that point? Uh, and you mm-hmm. see him struggling with that again. He, he goes and, and makes the move like he's going to feed on Shepard, and then he stops and he looks at his hand and he sees that his, his hand sucker's not there anymore. And I think it's, it's a great moment of crisis for Todd. So I have a hard time seeing Todd as just an animal. Now there is a planet less than three days' journey where we will find what we need. I can barely keep this thing in orbit. You want to take it into hyperspace? Oh, I can manage it. Oh, forget about it. We're going to come up with a solution right here. This is the only way to save my crew. No, we're not leaving. At least do me the courtesy of being honest. This is not about you not wanting to risk a jump to hyperspace on a damaged ship. You do not want me to go because I'll be restoring the lives of hundreds of unhealthy wraith, including myself. I gotta admit, that did cross my mind. This disease is your responsibility. If I not agree to meet with you to discuss this innovation of yours, my crew and I would not be in this predicament! Well... I might be feeling a little more charitable if you hadn't tried to kill half my people last time we decided to trust each other. You owe me this, Shepard. I don't owe you anything. Get him out of here. I see the Wraith from the perspective of what they could be. Are they only life-sucking aliens right now? Yes. It's like the replicators, the original replicators, you know. I mean, the, the, the Pegasus replicators obviously, you know, created art and were great at landscapes and things like that. But the block form replicators, their only purpose was to replicate. The only purpose of the Wraith 
is to feed. From our perspective, you know, that's that's what we think of them. But that's really all that they do. They really have no other purpose other than to eat. Mm. They just happen to be technologically advanced and, and have ships and, and language. They have anything which allows them to feed more efficiently, which is one of the, one of the letdowns, I think, because I wish that there was a wraith out there that didn't always think that way. I think the wraith as a species is a species that has a potential for art and for self-reflection and for growth. And I think that's one of the things that this gene therapy or Keller's wraith vaccine, whatever you want to call it, has the potential to allow them to become. It says a lot about Todd that he he took that, that data on the gene therapy from the Daedalus and then he says he was really curious to see if it would work. When this was first introduced in The Queen, Taylor had to kind of twist Todd's arm behind his back and say, if you don't make this gene therapy happen, you know, I'm going to come back. And here Todd is, is doing it voluntarily and he's, he's doing it on himself because I think he wants to see what he could be and if the wraith could really you know, free themselves from needing to feed on other life forms mm-hmm. like that. It was a leap for me from this episode because in the previous episodes, um, I think it was First Contact, uh, he was adamantly opposed to this therapy. They would lose their regeneration abilities. Right. They would have to ingest biological nutrients. Right. They would lose all sorts of the things that gave them an edge. And then in this episode, he is so eager to get this gene therapy checked out that he first tries it on himself, and then he's so pleased with the results that he tries it on his entire crew. It's surprising. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that, and I don't, I don't think it's revealed completely why he you know, suddenly had a huge change of heart about this therapy. I think the wraith could be more easily fed upon. You know, by their by their other wraith. You know, if you really think about it, they're they're a, a little bit more vulnerable than ever before. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Briefly, getting back to the the ethical issue of of killing the wraith crew and and Todd having tried to kill our crew, uh, mm-hmm. I think that the difference there is that Todd was going to allow our crew to die in order to accomplish his greater good, which is destroying the Atera device, which was threatening the wraith all over the galaxy, threatening their existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our crew mm-hmm. just happened to be on board the ship, and there was really no easy, expedient way of getting the crew off the ship. The ship had its right. weapons disabled, so all he could do was set it on a collision course. The difference here is that we actively killed his crew, uh, not even necessarily because they were threatening. I mean, they were threatening, but we did it out of self-preservation. Yeah. It's obviously a bad situation if you have 500 Wraith instead of 20 running around the, the corridors trying to eat you. Right. But it was sort of a, a preemptive self-preservation thing. I think if they're given the opportunity to grow as a culture and as a species and not just a, a, a species of locusts, that's what this therapy has always been about, mm-hmm. is about allowing the wraith to have a sense of identity, to have a sense of purpose other than feeding on humans. That mm-hmm. is what it has been about. And if we are killing them... We are preventing them from finding their way. Hmm. We are putting another nail in, the, in our own coffins for when more of them come back to communicate with us. I think the writers certainly are more interested in wiping them out than in making peace. That's what we kind of do. We don't find a way to solve our differences. We wipe them out. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a black and white, uh, good guys and bad guys 
mm-hmm. sort of approach. Now, what do you think of the idea of letting Todd go at the episode's end? Um, if we didn't let him go, he would die. He was sick. Yeah. It was, so it was either leave him in captivity... Seems to go without saying that Keller was not going to be able to figure out some 11th hour cure. Yeah. We, we've seen her do it before with, like, Beckett, solving Beckett's problem. Yeah, that, that just didn't seem to be the direction that they wanted to go. I think the idea was to get him off Atlantis so that he could come back in a future episode, you know? And put him in a sticky enough situation so that we ask ourselves, did he survive? Yeah, and I like the fact that Shepard is still, even though he's, he's pissed at Todd, he's still, at the end of the day, willing to say he's been our best ally when it comes to the Wraith, so hopefully he's going to survive. I don't think Shepard wants to send him off to his inevitable death. I think he wants him to live because he wants mm-hmm. to have that ally potentially in the future. He wants Todd to owe him one again. Exactly. There was this really big, um, like, circular thing at the end with, like, a shimmery blue puddle that Todd walked through. That was awesome. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What is that called? I think I used to know. Some sort of doorway to heaven. Yeah, yeah, or something like that. (laughs) As I said, there's lots of ways to interpret uh, that look on Shepard's face at the end and what's really Mm -hmm. going on internally with Shepard as he he bids farewell to Todd. Uh, I've read on the forum, some suggest that Shepard is maybe just... He's still pissed, he's done with Todd, and he's acting entirely on Atlantis's self-interest. But I kind of wonder if Shepard maybe still has this grudging respect for Todd and for what Todd is trying to accomplish for the Wraith. You know, I watched that, that farewell scene more in terms of their common ground relationship than what's gone on the last season or so. Um, I, I almost expected Shepard to sort of call out after him. Wait up, let me give you a hug. No, no, no. I hope you find what you're looking for or something like that. Um, but uh, I, that would have been too far. It would have been too out of character for, for the dark place that Shepard goes to in this episode. I think Todd is lucky that Shepard didn't kick him in the ass as he walked through the gate. Mm. I have two other comments to make about this episode. One is that it that, that last scene with Shepard and Woolsey in Woolsey's office, uh, it seems odd to me that they would talk so much about the stuff that we didn't get to see on screen after the ship crashed and somebody came to to rescue them and and then the ship sank a few minutes later and Shepard says boy I wish I was awake to see that I just thought to myself wow I wish I could have seen it too because it sounds really interesting but obviously they decided to skip over that in the script yeah it was it would have been very expensive yeah I would have liked to see that too we skip past that, that kind of stuff as, as unnecessary to the story a lot. It just seemed odd that they would talk about it so much. And then the other thing was, we're used to Taylor being underused, but it seemed like an odd underuse of Taylor uh, after the Queen and her relationship with Todd in that episode and her uh, you know threatening Todd to make good on his promise. Mm-hmm. I was hoping for a little bit of an exchange between them in terms of the fact that he had decided to go ahead and, and take the gene therapy, you know, maybe her inquiring as to the state of her domain. That yeah, she's what's going on with that? It was, it was her coolest episode of, like, ever. You know, what's going on with that With that hive? It was really, it was really a cool thing, and, and there was no acknowledgement of it whatsoever. You know, yeah. she just got, a, got to push a couple of buttons instead. It was, in terms of Todd and, and the gene therapy, it was almost a sequel to The Queen, so it just struck me as odd that there was not even so much as a as an exchange or conversation between mm-hmm. Taylor and mm-hmm. Todd on that matter. Exactly. Just, just a small point. 
My beef, believe it or not, for for those of the people who think that I worship Keller, you know, <laughs> my my one of my bigger beefs in this episode was with Jennifer Keller. I like Jewel State. I like her as an actress. I've been okay with Keller so far, but this episode was the first episode for me where she really got on my nerves. Really? Yes. Her moments with Rodney and some of the moments with Todd were, in my opinion, inappropriate because she is so filled with self-doubt. You know, I don't think that it's appropriate to sit down and hubbub discuss that while you're in the middle of a mission. Right. Rodney is her boyfriend, but yeah, it really feels like the sort of conversation she would have with mom. Yeah, they were expositing, they were talking about the situation, and then she switched gears and she said, well, you know, you guys are, are used to saving the galaxy, and I'm thinking, hold on, hold on. You've been out and about with these guys for two years now. I don't understand. what. Why are we, why are we sitting around talking about this? Leave your self-doubt in your quarters. You know, you are on a mission right now. These people depend on you. Why are we dealing with this right now? This is a discussion that should have been had in uh, Missing. And we're talking about this now? That really made me mad because I have been wanting Keller to become something more. You know, and that's one of the things that Tracker did so well is that she became something more. And this was just a regression from that. That knocked yeah. her down a couple of pegs in my book from that. And it was just, it was just disappointing. I'm kind of of two minds about that scene. On the one hand, I, I like the fact that Keller is such a humanizing presence when when Stargate tells stories that can be so fantastical. And, I agree. And heroes that are so heroic. I, I, I do appreciate the fact that Keller has brought a very me-and-you element to Atlantis. Um, but on the other side, yeah, you're right. You know, the first scene that we ever saw with Jennifer Keller was in the season three finale, First Strike. And that scene, she goes to Weir, and it's it's an expression of her self-doubt, of her ability to be the chief medical officer now that Carson is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it kind of in that sense feels like, in some respects, the character has not grown in those two years. It's almost as if they're kicking the character around like a ball and trying to figure out, what should we do with her this week? Well, let's go back to the old self-doubt thread, you know? And I, I hate feeling that way, you know, because I have such a problem with all these people who hate Keller, even though I love Carson Beckett. I am always up for giving a character as many chances as possible. Mm -hmm. But enough is enough. I mean, come on. (laughs) It's really frustrating. So not necessarily a bright spot in uh, infection, but overall, how would you rate this episode? The biggest thing that I loved about it was the cinematography. It was an excellent visual episode. Hmm. The sets were cool, gorgeous, well lit. The the fog and the mist weren't used too much. You know, it, it was a great looking set. That they've they've really done great things with the wraith sets this year. Uh-huh. Wasn't too big on the crash landing of the wraith hive ship. The water looked awful, in my opinion. I thought that the ship looked unrealistic in that shot. Really? And huh? The, the, the water. When we when we got to that helicopter shot, once the ship landed and we saw the water curling away, I was just like, that does not look real. You know, but props to the director of photography on that episode. You know, other than that visual effects shot, it looked gorgeous. I like the, Beyond the, that, the choice of the visual effects shot that um, after the ship crashes into the water, the camera goes low to the surface and the wave submerges the camera. Yes. I thought that was a cool choice. 
Yes, that was that was neat. Story overall, I just I just wasn't compelled to really sink my teeth into it. You know, other than the continuing relationship with Todd and Shepard, I I had very little interest, and I was I was hoping for much more out of Taylor from this episode. I love Rachel Luttrell, and and I I think she has a great range to her, but I continually think she's underused. I'm going to have to give this episode a four out of ten. Wow, so that's your lowest of the season so far. Yeah. As I said, the first part of the episode before Todd gets gets released from stasis, I, I felt was very by the numbers and was a lot of stuff that we've seen before, a lot of running through the corridors and monsters jumping out of the wall. Um, it didn't really catch my attention until Todd came along and it got more thoughtful and it got mm-hmm. more philosophical. And I agree. suddenly we have all this character undercurrent, uh, mm-hmm. especially in, in the Shepard and Todd relationship. I think the second half of the episode is very good. So it's yeah, it's the first half versus the second half. I'm in the balance. I think I'm going to give it a seven out of ten. Listener mail. In last week's listener question, we asked you if there was anything in these final episodes of Stargate Atlantis that you really want to see resolved. Any hanging plot threads or character threads or relationships that you want to see them wrap up before the show ends. Quaid 1 says, I would like to see closure in the Wraith storyline, but it doesn't necessarily have to end with their destruction. They could take the retrovirus, leave Pegasus, or whatever they decide. If they do not close the Wraith story, I would like closure in the movie, like they did with Ark of Truth. Lewis Co. writes, I would like to see what happened to that lost tribe of Asgard. Hopefully the powers that be will save them for a big send-off in the movie. Also, I would like some closure on the Janai. Are we allies or enemies? I've seen numerous episodes with the Janai opposing us, but claiming they do not work for the collective Janai people. And finally, I think it would be great if we could get some closure on what happened to Lieutenant Aiden Ford. That is a great comment. You know, that, that's, the, that's the thing with the evil Asgard. You know, it, it was frustrating enough to learn from Martin Garrow that they didn't give them a name, you know, but... They do such a great job with this new enemy. And then the rest of the half of the season, where are they? I would love I, I would love to have had this episode be about them rather than the Wraith. I would love for that slot. I would, I would love for uh, Vegas to have been dedicated to them rather than us exploring an alternate reality or whatever it is. I, don't, I honestly don't know. I'm still holding out for Evil Asgard in the season finale, and we know next to nothing about the plot line for Enemy at the Gate, other than there's an enemy and they are at the gate. Uh, and I really, I still hope it's the Asgard. But if it is, will that be enough for you? They made such a big to-do about them in the mid-season two-parter, and then we have them in, in the finale. Will you be satisfied? No. I think that, you know, obviously the writers brought back the Asgard as a huge mid-season event, and they intended, I think, to use them in the future. They, they obviously didn't know at that point that the show was going to end this year. So I think the intention is still to use them if we don't see them again by the end of this season. Uh, I hope it's a given that, that we'll see them in a movie at some point, uh, assuming that, it, that the Atlantis movies are, are popular enough to, to warrant their mm-hmm. making several of them. I mean, this show has always been very episodic and not, not necessarily very arc-driven, so it doesn't mm-hmm. surprise me, I guess I should say, that, that they were introduced in the mid-season two-parter and then... Um, we might see them in the finale, but we might not see them until what would have been mm-hmm. season six. It doesn't surprise me that they they only give them, you know, one or two episodes a year, like like major Mike. Atlantis arc elements like Michael. 
Exactly. We see Michael a couple times a year. The show is what it is. It's more episodic, so I don't really expect that the evil Asgard get introduced in episode 11, and then we see them four more times this season. Syncretic says, as for whether the Wraith should be completely destroyed, I think no, not at all. I love the way the storyline has been going lately, and I'd like to see the movies taking a slightly different tack and playing on the increasing humanization of the Wraith, such as the battle turns away from being purely military and taking on a slightly more intellectual, philosophical feel. I'd love to see the Wraith take on the questionable allies role once again, and it'd be good to see more mind games and less explosions. I think the movies are more about the explosions than about the mind games, but I I, I would love for a nice balance of both. Yeah, I hope we can do both. I think Stargate is at its best when we can do both, when, when we can have action-adventure that is a bit more thoughtful, a bit mm-hmm. more intellectual. And that's, as mm-hmm. I said, that's certainly what I think Todd has been. That's what Todd has represented in The Wraith is uh, the Wraith philosopher. And that's what I loved about season four's Be All My Sins. Remember, you know, you, know, you had this, this mm-hmm. gorgeous dynamic about, about is, is Fran alive and, and should we use her as a terrorist bomb? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we had this epic battle that has not been outshined since. I would really like for Stargate to be willing to do quiet character episodes like that more. When, when I saw Be All My Sins Remembered, I wished that that would have been the two-parter. Part one is the big ethical question of can we use Fran this way? And then part two is the big the big attack on the replicator homeworld. Do an episode like, I can't go an entire podcast without mentioning Star Trek The Next Generation. The fifth season episode, I Borg with Hugh, that episode is all about this guy's our enemy. Mm-hmm. We've, our mortal enemy, we thought of him as, as again, as, as a thing not as a person with rights uh, and then mm-hmm. he suddenly becomes a person and does he have mm-hmm. rights and can we use him in this way I'd love to see Stargate do episodes like that and then pay it off with the big cool action adventure we also had uh, some listeners comment on our fan entitlement discussion Yako writes this podcast totally got derailed and off topic when you guys veered off onto the tangent about conventions In one breath, you talked about how fans who post online were a marginal representation of viewership and relatively inconsequential, but then went ahead and focused the Fan Entitlement podcast on the behavior and habits, likes and dislikes of an even smaller subset of fans, convention-goers. The discussion was very interesting when you were addressing stuff like Jack's unexplained exit or the need for in-story explanations of major changes, but you really lost me with the discussion of convention etiquette. Not only is it such a tiny, tiny segment of fans, but judging from everything that I've seen and read, it's often the same couple hundred fans at every convention. That's a good point, that's, and that's a fair point, too. I don't think there's anything wrong with us going down a tangent every now and then as long as we come back. That's one of the reasons that I do these discussions is because you don't always know exactly where it's going to lead. But yeah, that's a fair point, certainly. Yeah, I think it's, it's fair to, to say that convention-goers are, are a very, very small subset of a subset of a subset of fandom. But yeah, we, we started the structure for that podcast. We started talking about general viewers, basically everybody who watches Stargate. And then we got specific to those those hardcore loyal fans like you and me. And then we ended with the convention as, as even the more specific example. Cal says, Stargate has been around for as long as it has because the studio and the network felt that there is enough support from the fans to form a solid core for the audience at large. But when the producers start making such drastic changes to a formula that works and end up angering enough of the fans that those previously loyal fans start leaving and spreading negative word of mouth in their wake, that all-important core of audience support is destroyed. 
the producers do need to listen to the fans so that they do not lose touch with what will make the fans happy and keep them coming back for more. Yeah, in general, I would say, again, it's it's important that, that the powers that be listen to the fans overall. But, you know, it's got to be tough for them to get an overall view when you're hearing so many specific things and... and some are specific praises and some are specific criticisms, and not everybody likes the same stuff. And we have some listener voicemail as well. Hello, my name is John, and I'm calling from Eureka, California. Uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to say that uh, uh, both Stargate and Stargate Atlantis have been my favorite television shows for years now, and uh, I certainly hated hearing the news that uh, Atlantis is going to be canceled. I just hope there's some chance that... Uh, Maybe some of the powers that be may rethink uh, that decision and keep it going. However, I am glad to hear that there's going to be some uh, some new movies. And I hope you don't regret the mistake of canceling these two wonderful shows. Thank you very much. This is Jim from Winter Park, California, and it's about the cancellation of the show. I think this is probably one of the biggest mistakes that uh, the sci-fi has ever thought about doing. I cannot see why anyone would want to cancel such a high-rated show. And I do look forward to seeing the movies, but it's going to be very disappointing not to see the series. Thanks to Jim and John for calling us and for everyone who wrote in on this week's topic. Uh, Here's the listener question for next week's podcast. This will be our last show of 2008. We're talking about Identity next week. That'll be the last new episode of Atlantis for 2008. Uh, we want you to tell us about your number one Stargate moment from the past year. Was it a particular episode of Atlantis or one of the SG-1 movies? Is there a particular scene that tops your list for the year? Or maybe it was an experience at a convention or sharing Stargate with someone you love. Tell us about the single moment that has made Stargate special to you in 2008. Next week, Tammy Farrar from GateWorld Forum joins us to talk about Identity. That's on Sci-Fi Channel this Friday night. And then David and I are taking two weeks off from the podcast for the Christmas season. And we'll be back on January 6th to talk about Vegas. Thanks for joining us once again for this week's podcast. We want to hear from you. Give us your feedback on the GateWorld Podcast hotline. Just call us at 616 712 1647. You can give us the answer to this week's listener question, or just tell us anything uh, Stargate-related that's on your mind. You can also post on the podcast feedback thread over at GateWorld Forum. In this episode, David and I talked about last week's new episode, Infection. For links to everything that we talked about, look for the episode number 22 show notes. From GateWorld.net, this is Darren Sumner. I'm David Reed. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast.